0: not looking for a show of hands, but think about where you consider yourself to be in terms of your economic situation. Do you find yourself to be rich? Do you find yourself to be poor? Do you find yourself to be somewhere in the middle? This psalm is addressed to verse 2, both low and high, rich and poor together. In fact, even more broadly than that, verse 1, hear this, all peoples, Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart, understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. This psalm is one of the wisdom psalms. And so it's different from psalms of lament or psalms of praise or psalms where David, or the sons of Korah, or someone else is primarily asking God for something, this is a psalm that says, here's what life looks like, let, you remind you, let me remind you about it, let me point you to truths about how God has made the world to work. Here's the question, verse 5, why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? It's been true throughout history that there have been those who have great wealth and great power who have used that to take advantage of others. And so this psalm has application to a variety of circumstances, but the question remains the same, why should I fear, should I fear when someone who has the advantage of me from the world's perspective seems to be prospering, seems to be living wickedly, and has all of these apparent blessings, if you will. Sometimes the question that we wrestle with as Christians when we read the Bible or when we look at our own experience is, should I measure God's approval of me by how well I am doing by the standards of society around me and it's tempting to do that potentially it is a natural human tendency to compare ourselves with other people am I better than them in some way am I worse than them in some way which leads either to pride or to jealousy in some fashion But the question is going to be responded to this way throughout the psalm. These seeming advantages are not advantages in God's sight. We should not necessarily equate riches with God's blessing. We should not necessarily equate poverty with God's displeasure. James said it well when he said, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And he admonishes those who are rich in the world not to trust in those riches. And so whichever position you find yourself in, this psalm is going to encourage us to fear God, not those who have worldly advantages, primarily wealth. Why? Or rather, why not? Why should we not fear those who have power through their wealth, why should we not envy them? Verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Um, this is, this is what we try to do when we have everything else seemingly in order. We try, like Simon the Magician, to buy the things that are most important, but you can't buy those things. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. You can't buy God's favor. You can't buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You cannot buy your way into heaven. And beyond that, your money will not protect you from a coming day on which you will die. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Think about some famous person who's relatively long-lived. What keeps happening? They keep getting older. And you can patch the body up for a long time, but you can't restore youth to it. You can extend life for a long time, but you cannot grant eternal life because that's something that only comes from God. And so if you are trusting in your money to buy spiritual things for you or to preserve your life, you will fail. Those that the psalmist admonishes are going to fail. Verse 10, "...for he sees wise men die." The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. This says echoes of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it, right? You can be wise. You can be foolish. Death catches up to everyone. So, Ecclesiastes said, well, then why bother being wise? Because your life as a general rule will go better in God's sight during your brief time on this earth than if you are foolish but wisdom is not the ultimate goal because it will not preserve you from the end of life again that admonition was so trusting God why do people ignore this obvious fact verse 11 their inner thought is that their houses are forever their dwelling places to all generations They have called their lands after their own names. It is possible for someone to look out at all that they possess and say, look at the work of my hands. Look at this building or house or object that is named for me. But the reality is, if the only thing that stays behind you is stuff that's a poor memorial to your life and it's not really a satisfying end. Names on buildings get changed on highways. Works of art fall out of favor. Works of music lose their popularity. Even those that you would expect to remember you, like family, sometimes due to grief and sometimes due to um, natural human forgetfulness, stop thinking about you as much as they once did. So if your life consists in making a name for yourself and being remembered by things that you can see, what good is that life? It is a temporary thing, soon gone, without lasting value. Verse 12: Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. How many of you have had a favorite dog, cat? I could go on from there: fish, snake, gerbil tend not to attach as much affection to those things. How many of you have had a favorite pet? Okay. From the perspective of how that pet is now and someone who has died, apart from that someone having a relationship with God, are they any better off than your pet that died? If they don't know God, the psalmist is saying, they're still dead. Verse 13 says, This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. It is foolish to look at my life and think that my life has meaning because I have things. It is foolish to say my life has value because my name is on some big building it is foolish to say my life has value because I own this piece of property or that piece of property because what really matters is not intangible but it's also not yet visible becoming kingdom of God and being in his presence forever what really matters can't be bought with earthly money And so, it is foolish to trust in those things. To think that by them we can escape the realities of life. We can ignore them for a time, but these things catch up to all of us sooner or later. And to those who follow the example of those who are in power, uh, there's something to be said about this today, right? People will... Become famous simply because they draw attention to themselves online or in the news or in politics or whatever else. And sometimes it's not the person who's the center of attention, sometimes it's the people that are following after that person. It's almost as saying they're just as foolish. We must, as God's people, beware of the danger of adopting the mindset of people around us that our life has value because of temporal things because when you think about it what's the reality of temporal things you have to protect them they wear out you have to move them about they get in the way I'm not saying it's wrong to have things in your house but far more often Things are a burden more than they are a blessing, particularly when we come to worship them because they are a poor master and a false idol. They cannot take God's place. What is the end of those who trust in their wealth instead of in God? What is the truth of it? In their minds, they think, I've made a lasting legacy for myself, what's the truth of it? As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so they have no habitation. The poetry of this verse is profound. In the imagery that would have been familiar to a people who worked regularly with livestock. Here's people who, from the world's perspective, set their own destiny, directed the course of their lives. What does the verse say? Now they're like sheep being herded into the afterlife by death. They have no choice in the matter. They thought they were in a position of power, but the upright shall rule over them in the morning, which I think is an expectation of a a coming day of God's blessing for those who trust in Him. talk more about that in a moment with verse 15. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. The irony is that those who consumed this world's advantages now are consumed by the death that has overtaken them some people see in this verse a support for the idea of annihilation but the picture that's painted for us elsewhere in scripture does not fit with that those who reject God experience conscious torment not an immediate zap and they're gone which is both terrifying and motivating terrifying because it means that those who reject God have a fearful end and motivating because we ought to warn people of that fate. It is bad, but not so bad, if like the Sadducees we think life ends at the point of death. It is an awful thing to think that life goes on apart from God in torment for eternity. And that is something that we often don't think about. That ongoing suffering, that ongoing being consumed by death is something that those who are in positions of power and wealth rarely consider, but would do well to take heed to because, like the story that Jesus told of the rich man who said, you know what, I've got all these things, I've got all this grain and all these possessions, I need to build more and bigger to hold them all. How did the story go? You fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. What's the contrast in the expectation of the righteous? Look at verse 15. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me, or He will take me. This is similar language to the way it describes what God did with Um, Enoch what God did with Elijah they were caught up to be with God Enoch was not for God took him Elijah was not because he went to God's presence in a flaming fire a chariot of fire the expectation even for the Old Testament saint was to be with God now people get into detailed arguments about what did they know did they believe in a bodily resurrection Did they believe in the concept of heaven? Did they understand all of these other things about it? Obviously, God progressively unfolds truth about what being with Him eternally looks like. But it seems very clear from passages like this and others in the Psalms that Old Testament saints who knew God had a sense that they would be with their God even after death. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol which is a contrast to verse 8 or verse 7, no man can by any means redeem his brother, give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. Pause there for a moment. You cannot buy your soul because you don't have anything that has enough value to pay for it. God can redeem your soul And he has done so in Christ for all who are believing in him. And so that is something where the New Testament um, intersects with what we see here in the Old Testament and ought to give us hope and to consider this idea. What Jesus said, I think, is very appropriate here. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? which is the New Testament equivalent of the point that this passage is making. So what's the conclusion, then, in light of these truths? Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. Why would they fear a man who becomes rich? Because with riches come power, with power often comes oppression, and those who are not in the position to compete with or overpower that person are often at his mercy. When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. There's a a joke about a lady whose husband had great wealth. And she said or he said to her, "I want you to put it all in the casket with me when I die." I said, "Okay." And after the funeral, some friends of hers came up to her, having heard of his odd request, and they said, did you really do it? Did you put all his wealth in the casket with him? She said, yep, I wrote him a check. He can cash it. He can have it all. We um, can't take anything with us. Naked we come into this world. Naked we leave it. Nothing of our material possessions will go with us. The pharaohs tried. What happened? Robbers came in and took all their stuff because it was still there. Rich people have been buried with all sorts of crazy things. Cars, favorite animals, you name it. If you went and dug up the grave, that thing would still be there. But they wouldn't be because you cannot take the stuff of this world, beyond this world. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers, they will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. If we experience life in this world, and we fail to acknowledge God and worship and serve him, and trust in Him rather than in the things that we possess, we are no better than roadkill that you drive by going down I-75. Because you're going to end up exactly like that, and all of the things that you thought would help you out in this life will not help you out in the life to come. Hebrews says, It is appointed to men once to die, And after this comes judgment. And it is possible for us to congratulate ourselves and have others praise us, but the assessment that really matters is God's. And so maybe you're in a position where those who have wealth and authority have taken advantage of you. God says, fear me, don't fear them. Their day is coming, and I will set the account straight. Perhaps you're in a position where God has blessed you, and you have begun to fall into the temptation that the writer of Proverbs was concerned about, where he said, give me neither poverty nor riches, because if I have riches, I don't need to trust God anymore. And maybe you're in a position in life where life seems relatively secure. Don't trust God in riches, trust in God. And whichever of those circumstances you find yourself in, as it says in the beginning here, low and high, rich and poor together, do you and I do what the psalmist is doing here? Do we confront the people around us, both by our example and our words, with the futility of populating our lives With whatever it might be. I've seen this in a variety of places with the hobbies that people pursue, the jobs that they pour their lives into, the projects that they invest themselves into. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruit of your labor. Ecclesiastes commends that to us. Enjoy your work, and the fruit of your work, and the opportunity that you have to spend time with family and food and all of those blessings of God, recognize they don't last. So don't love them in place of God. Don't think that they add value to your life beyond a temporary help. Nothing wrong with appreciating beauty or doing something well. Don't live for things that can be stolen or rot or burn. Because that's foolishness. Instead, live for God, because in Him is the promise of eternal life, the hope, of true justice, not just a mere balancing of accounts in this life, and an inheritance that is worth far more than anything that this world can offer. So, fear God. Don't fear the wealthy. You are one that God has blessed with wealth. You need to fear God too and not trust in what you have which is a theme that we'll revisit as we come to the close of the book of James. This is such a temptation in our world today. And you don't have to have a $500,000 house to trust in what you have. It is very easy for our hearts to go astray in this area. May God help us to see the essential nature of trusting in Him and not in things. Let's pray. Lord, this psalm of wisdom is convicting. Whenever things seem to be going our way, we are so quick to think that we no longer need to depend on you in prayer, that we no longer need to ask you for your help because we think we've got it all figured out. It's even more true for those who are not believing in you and not following you, but even as your people, we adopt that mindset far too easily. Lord, help us not to put our faith in all of these things that surround us in this world. Help us to put our trust in you. Help us to see that to do otherwise is a kind of idolatry. We might not cut down trees or shape rocks with a hammer and chisel. But when things take your place in our hearts, then our worship has been corrupted and we are not honoring you as we should. Lord, we thank you for the hope of salvation that you offer, not a temporary immortality, if we can call it that, because people know our name and praise us and give us things and whatever else that this passage talks about, but a real and lasting immortality that is to be in your presence for eternity and receive the blessings that you intend for your people. Help us to look to that. In Christ's name, amen.